Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that reminds you that awards season really is a year-round event. I am not Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com. She's on a well-deserved vacation this week. I am instead Richard Lawson, the film critic for Vanity Fair, and I'm here with Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. Hello, Richard. And digital director Mike Hogan. Hey, guys. Uh, so we have a couple things to talk about this week, from movies to television to, well, the future of movies, which with the Cannes Film Festival is about to announce its lineup next week. So we thought we'd go through a list of kind of potential movies that could be there. First, we want to start with the present. This week, a movie called Colossal is opening. It's an Anne Hathaway film that's directed by Nacho Vigalondo, who previously had done a lot of really kind of smaller art house things. And this is his first big, you know, thing with movie stars in it. And I saw it at Toronto. And Joanna, when did you see Colossal? At South by Southwest. And what were your impressions? Because it seems to be kind of a polarizing movie. I really liked it, but what, what did you think? I loved it. I had gone in, I read your review out of Toronto. And so I was like really excited ever since I read your review, which was very positive and the right amount of oblique, I think. So, you know, I made sure that I got tickets to see it at South by and I went in and, you know, Nacho Vigalondo was there. Um, It's being distributed by Neon, which is the Alamo Drafthouse's distribution arm. This is one of their first films, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And they made some like sort of muscly bids mm-hmm. uh, to grab this and a couple of the things from Sundance. And so, you know, like Tim Leake from Alamo was there and they were all like in their cups and really excited. Jason Sudeikis was there and the mood was like really high in the room. But what was interesting to me is something that they said they had found out from test audiences is that you know, they're trying to sort of keep back some of the information about the movie, which I think is right. And so I wouldn't call the marketing campaign deceptive, but just sort of like hamstrung by trying to keep you surprised by some things to come. And so as a result, they've seen in a lot of test audiences that women over 30, of which I am in that demographic, were mad that it wasn't more of a sappy love story between Anne Hathaway and Jason Sudeikis's character. And I did not agree with that. I mm. thought it was a great story about toxic masculinity is what I would yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so what the previews kind of show is that Anne Hathaway plays this kind of down and out young woman who like leaves New York City, goes back to her hometown and just kind of bums around and then slowly realizes that there's a monster who's attacking Seoul, South Korea. That's like, on the news and everyone's you know freaking out about it. And she slowly realizes that they're connected somehow they have some sort of bond i feel like that's kind of what the marketing materials show uh, and we should caveat you know spoiler alert etc but you're right i mean this movie takes this fascinating left turn about i don't know two-thirds of the way through where it becomes very much about toxic masculinity and male entitlement on kind of men's rights culture and gamergate i mean it it doesn't reference any of those things specifically but i think it's very much about that it's steeped in that kind of culture yeah which to me feels like really great that somebody is talking about that in you know in this kind of grand cinematic form you know and i actually did meet the director in toronto and i asked him i said you know is this about gamergate and is this about men's rights and he said yeah i mean it's definitely it's definitely partly about that and then he kind of later denied that in a press conference. But so so who knows he's, what the truth is. But he's a very interesting figure, not Chevy Galando. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's funny because I was describing this movie to someone, a male critic I know as feminist, which I think it is. And he was like, well, I don't see it as very feminist because she's kind of like a train wreck. And I was like, that's not that those two things aren't mutually exclusive. I, I think she is down and out, but you don't have to be a like, 
have it all, do it all woman in order to be telling a feminist story. In fact, I think her struggle is that much more compelling. So yeah, I mean, Anne Hathaway is great in this movie. I will say the plot takes some twists and turns Mm -hmm. that I'm not sure track quite believably with the character in order to arrange all the players where they need to be a couple different times. Yeah. If that makes sense. And so, and then there's a few other threads that are picked up and sort of abandoned, like something involving Tim Blake Nelson is just sort of dropped in there and, and not really set up or resolved in any way. So Tim Blake Nelson, who plays sort of like one of the, the townies. Yeah. So I wouldn't call it like a perfect film, but in terms of like an inventive genre way to tell a really interesting and socially relevant story, I really admire it. Yeah. And I think that you mentioned Anne Hathaway being great in it, and I, I totally agree. And it's a really interesting role for her at this sort of moment in her career. She's had a sort of um, post Les Mis Oscar has been... You know, so she had Dark Knight Rises that same year, and that movie, while you know successful, and she I think is pretty good in it, was obviously mm-hmm. incredibly and justly overshadowed by the tragedy that happened in Colorado surrounding that. You know, at a screening of that movie, uh, and then since then she's kind of just popped up in like voice. Well, Interstellar, um, she was great in Song One, which nobody saw. Uh, the Intern, which was really cute, Nancy Myers movie. It's just been a kind of weird, peripatetic, like just kind of shifting between genre. And this is this yeah. really cool, weird sci-fi indie thing where she is, without a doubt, the lead role. You know, she's not really. I mean, Jason Sudeikis is the next biggest player, but I mean, this is Anne Hathaway's movie, and it's just such an oddball choice for her. But I think she pulls it off so well. I think it's my favorite performance of hers in a long time. Yeah, maybe since Rachel getting married, maybe. I don't. Mm-hmm. I really like watching Anne Hathaway play train wrecks, to yeah, be honest with you. Yeah. Because I think she does exude, I think, something that you've called, like, sort of a theater kid, yeah. overachiever, performer sort of persona. And, you know, she's talked frequently and recently attached to this movie of sort of the weird mm, public backlash to Anne Hathaway, this weird relationship that the public has with her. Because, the half-a-haters. Yeah, the, the half-a-haters. Because I think no one would deny her talent, but there is something about her that people have a weird reaction to, and I think this movie kind of leans into that mm-hmm. in a fun and meta way, and I find that really compelling. And I think the same is true for Jason Sudeikis, where this movie, I think, employs Something about Sudeikis' personality that has never quite been utilized in this way. And so I think this is far and away sort of the best stuff we've ever seen from him as well. Yeah, and I think that the movie very cleverly takes what is likable about Jason Sudeikis, which is this kind of affable, you know, bro, but like approachable bro, maybe like acts like a bit of a dickhead sometimes, but like at heart is like a good guy. And it just tweaks it just a few degrees and then it tips over into this kind of darkness that um, I think is a real reflection of sort of nice guy, you know, thinking uh, in those sort of men's rights spheres and all that. So, yeah, I I think it's a really well cast movie. It doesn't feel at all awardsy, right? Like to you? I mean, I I think that like in some weird world, Anne Hathaway could be in the running for like an independent spirit award nomination, but like, I don't don't even know about that. Like, I I think think maybe if it came out later, I think it will depend how big it is, you know, because the weird marketing and the weird constraints around the marketing of this movie, I think might make it a challenge for the right audience to find it. Word of mouth, I think will be very helpful, but if it becomes a huge phenomenon, which like in some universe, I could see it becoming, then we might still be talking about it in a big way. Come award season, you know, Yeah. not, not Oscar-y, but you're right. Independent spirit. And maybe even some of the special effects because 
at least like, you know, a final, final confrontation. I found that kind of as visually convincing as any, you know, big budget movie we've seen in a while. Yeah, I mean, it obviously has a constrained budget. But I think that what we're seeing a lot of these days with kind of, you know, I'm thinking back to um, Monsters, the movie that Gareth Edwards made pre Rogue One, um, Mm -hmm. these independent movies that use their restrained budget. And so the special effects are very judiciously applied. You know, they're not overdone. And those end up looking so much better than the movies that spend $150 million on a bunch of, you know, green screen shit. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think there's a lot about this movie that's cool and and worth seeing. I think it's doing a kind of slower release. It's not going to be in every city on Friday. But if you get a chance, I think people should see it. And, um, you know, I ended my review at Toronto saying that, like, a lot of the straight male critics I talked to afterward didn't like it and that other people will see why they didn't and, and will actually love it for those same reasons. That's not actually empirically true. I did speak to a female critic, <laughs> reached out to me after she read my review, and she's like, well, I'm <laughs> I'm not a straight man, and I didn't like it. So see it for yourself, though. Yeah, and I just want to encourage the women over 30 to like do bright by our demographic. And mm-hmm. I felt like we were very maligned in this particular screening. They made it sound like we were all like, I don't know, romance novel reading weirdos. And I was just like, you know, women over 30 don't go to the movies just to see Anne Hathaway and Jason Sudeikis fall in love. Some of them just want to see monsters fight other things. Absolutely. So, there you go. Speaking of women over 30 and monsters, uh, <laughs> that's a, maybe a cruel segue for a great show. So Big Little Lies just ended on Sunday, Joanna, and you and I had seen, I think, had you seen the whole show, before, you know, previous to air? or cause yes. it, Yeah. So despite having seen it, you know, ahead of time, it was really fun on Twitter on Sunday to see people react to how the show ended, um, which I think is pretty beautifully and to see a lot of assessment of the show. Oh, and we should, you know, in case people aren't familiar, this is HBO's seven-episode miniseries written by David E. Kelly, directed by Jean-Marc Vallée, and starring Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Kibben, Zoe Kravitz, Laura Dern, Shailene Woodley, Alexander Skarsgård, uh, Adam Scott, Scott. Everybody's in this thing. But yeah, just seeing kind of their assessment it going from sort of like soapy murder mystery to like, oh, wow, this is actually about something. What, what right. was it about to you, Joanna? Toxic masculinity. Um, No, I I really think you can draw a line between Colossal and Big Little Lies. I think there's some connective tissue there, despite the difference in genre. You know, when I I first got the screeners for Big Little Lies, I knew it was based on kind of this beach read by an Australian author, I believe, uh, Leanne Moriarty. And, you know, I knew it was a beach read. I knew that occasionally... Reese Witherspoon likes to pick up books that I don't have like the highest opinion of and then sort of turn them into projects that I think are very, very interesting. And yeah, she did that with Gone Girl kind of most famously. Exactly. And Wild too, which was sort of a, I don't know that I didn't love the book as much as everyone else. And then I thought the movie was actually quite stunning. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, so, so I, I went into the show sort of wondering if it was going to be able to transcend the sort of like, beach read vibe that I had around it. And I watched the first episode and I was like, ah, pretty white people, pretty rich white people having problems. I don't really care. Then I talked to Kate Arthur from Buzzfeed and she was like, listen, I think female fronted material often gets dismissed or boxed. And I think you should give this more of a chance than you're giving it. And I was like, okay. So I watched some more and I agree with her. And I think that that is one of the things that people have really come to see with Big Little Lies is that like we are quick to dismiss something like this as soapy or like lifetime drama or what have you. When in fact, like, you know, if this were 
a male fronted show, I don't think it would have had as much of a stigma going in. And I think everyone who stuck with it found extraordinary depth in it. Mm-hmm. And from issues that I think we often don't give their full weight, for example, you know, like the, the finale is pretty spectacular and we can definitely talk about that. But I think my favorite part was this scene. I think it was midway through when Nicole Kidman um, has gone to this sort of city council sort of meeting and, and she's gotten to practice law, which she hasn't, she's put aside to raise her children at her husband's behest. And she gets to be a lawyer and she gets in the car and she's really happy. And she's talking to Reese Witherspoon. And then she's like devastated because she says, you know, basically she admits being a mom isn't enough for her. And she needs more. That is such a truth of so many women I know. Something that is like never given the prestige TV treatment. And, you know, I think we're really lucky to have this caliber of production value and acting talent around this particular issue. Yeah. Mike, what did you think about the show? Like, were you like an avid watcher or? I have to say that I kind of fell into it. So at least my fiance was watching it. And she watched like the first episode or two without me. And then I kind of was like drifting in. It was that kind of thing where like, hmm, that looks kind of good. Yeah. And by the end of it, last night, I just watched the uh, the finale alone. Yeah. Um, I thought it was really well done, yeah. really good. The characters are great. And it's been fun to watch on social. People's just sort of people have become obsessed with like, who's a Reese and who's a Nicole? And yeah, who's exactly. a Celeste <laughs> and Bonnie. Yeah. 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 And. I mean, I thought that the ending was, it was kind of funny. First of all, I don't know how they were all so good at singing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. I also, I did a little bit of like a thinking emoji around the solution of the mystery, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I thought it was kind of great, but also yeah. I was like, is this problematic? I can't decide if it's problematic. Yeah. I mean, we'll issue a spoiler alert. So, you know, if you haven't seen the show yet, fast forward through this. But yeah, so in the end, we're, we're all waiting to hear who died and it's I think it was pretty obvious from the get-go that it was going to be Skarsgård because he's this villain, this abusive monster. But, you know, the other mystery is who did it. And it turns out that it's Zoe Kravitz, who, as Bonnie, as um, James Tupper's new wife, Reese Witherspoon's ex's new wife. And she didn't have a ton to do on the show. I mean, she she had maybe a couple episodes where she was more to the center, but then otherwise was kind of in the background. But apparently in the novel, it's intimated more directly or at all that Bonnie had had some sort of abusive past with her father. And so that's kind of why she reacts the way that she does Ah, upon seeing this scene happening. And so there isn't that context in the show, but I don't know. The more I thought about it, I was like, the randomness of it works. Like, who else could it have been? Because everyone else was sort of too connected to it. Yeah. Well, okay. I'm just going to put my finger on the potentially problematic yeah, thing, which sure. is there's one black person in the entire town mm-hmm. and they're the murderer. Uh, and yeah. And I didn't uh, even occur to me. <laughs> and I think it's good that it didn't occur to you and I'd wish it hadn't occurred to me. But then I was wondering, well it's interesting because is it subverting that like so then they all conspire to protect her and I thought, is this some kind of weird like flick at criminal justice reform mm-hmm. that they think that she would have been prosecuted more harshly right. because she was black or are we just pretending that we that there's no race in this town which is fine i was just kind of it was like wow there's a whole thicket of weird racial stuff that came up there yeah um that okay i think part yeah. of it has to do uh, part of the reason it didn't like quite occur to me in that way i think well on the one hand i, I kind of feel like they all kind of did it together like she did the push yeah but like but it was, it's was a heroic say, act too in in many ways right you know? and someone yeah. else probably would have done it had it not been her I right guess you could, right yeah. 
But also I think because her race isn't raised anywhere else in the series, like if anything, everyone just comments about how beautiful she is. She's othered in the series because she's like young and hot and a yoga instructor and not quite as much because of like of her race as far as I can tell. But that is, that is interesting. I think they kind of, they vaguely implied her abusive past because Zoe Kravitz at the end is sort of like on the beach touching at her neck in a way to Hmm. me that sort of implied some sort of abusive, I don't know why I was reading that much into it. And then, yeah, I found out that there was much more to it in the books, um, or at least a little bit more to it in the books. I also found out that in the book, Reese Witherspoon's character didn't have an affair and Reese insisted on that so that her character would be like less sympathetic and more complicated. And I think that's really fascinating. Well, I mean, can we talk about Reese Witherspoon and how great she is? Oh my God. She just perfectly embodies now that, that, I don't know what you call it, uh, icon or whatever it is. She is the embodiment of the Tracy Flick, like, I'm too perfect. I'm just a little yeah. too perfect. Yeah, yeah. And I think that this show, or miniseries, whatever you want to call it, um, where she is playing this wonderfully kind of type A, you know, it, it reflected the kind of Reese Witherspoon we see on Instagram and uh, in her Draper James, you know, ads and all that stuff. But it also the show reflected the kind of darker stuff when we see, you know, arrest videos or uh, <laughs> or whatever, and which which you know almost make me love her more. You know, yeah. it's such a great role for both sides of this kind of movie star who I think for a long time is sort of maybe post Oscar been wrestling with which side to give us. Yeah, uh, and this is just the perfect like marriage of the two. I think it's a strikingly good performance, even though she. You know, compared to Nicole Kidman, who's also amazing, Nicole Kidman has more of a deeper sort of emotional run to, to yes. you know to do. But I think Reese Witherspoon's so good. Yeah, I think this is the best thing I've ever seen Nicole Kidman do, and I'm trying to figure out why that is. And it might just be that having this many hours to sort of dig into that character, because yeah. like when you start the series, you and of course you don't know everything about this character. When you start the series, you're just sort of like, okay. And there's Nicole Kidman looking beautiful. Like she always does. And then she really gets to explore many different corners of this character. And I'm so excited. Cause you know, she's going to be in season two top of the lake. Uh, and she's got like a very different look for that Jane campion show. And so I'm, ex- I'm more Nicole Kidman, TV, the better as far as I'm yeah, concerned. Yeah, it's, it's so. interesting, like, maybe Nicole Kidman is such a subtle actress that we should have had her in TV shows all along so yeah. that she could slowly peel back layers of characters, yeah. you know, because she doesn't go in for the kill. She kind of lets you discover. Yeah. And it is a really terrific performance. I, I admittedly missing the first episode or two, but like <laughs> well, by the end of it, I was hooked. But she really gets going in, I think, episode three or four. Yeah. Um, she has these therapy scenes with Robin Weigert, who's also fantastic as the therapist. So yeah. good. Those therapy scenes are like the most invigorating therapy scenes since like The Sopranos. Like they're so well done. They're so perfectly written and acted. Speaking about Nicole Kidman being on TV versus on television, I saw something interesting on Twitter, maybe or somewhere online. Oh, it was on Jezebel. Bobby Finger, friend of the podcast, wrote it about how Nicole Kidman is always good and has sought out and found a lot of really interesting roles. But a lot of those interesting roles are in bad movies. Yeah. Like you think about the paper boy or something like that. You know? Yeah. But this is Eyes Wide Shut. Just kidding. Kind of. <laughs> not really. <laughs> no, no, no. That's a whole other podcast. Um, but like here she has a great role and it's in a great thing. 
and so she just shines ever brighter and you're like oh mm-hmm. god that's right when mm-hmm. she's when it's a when it's a marriage between role and the larger product she's just kind of unbeatable like she's yeah. so good and helene peterson over at buzzfeed uh wrote this piece a couple days ago called how many times does nicole kidman have to prove herself which i actually thought was also a very good take because i think we do all agree that nicole kidman is talented but then we also i think are consistently surprised so i don't know why we are so quick to forget how actually good Nicole Kidman is and why her acting chops don't stick in our brain. Well, if I had to venture a guess, I mean, she's such a big movie star, first and foremost, and there's a certain chilliness about her persona. Yeah. You know, she doesn't, she snaps back to a chilly, distant movie star when you're not actually watching the movie and she's out and about, you know? So um, I wonder if that has something to do with it. It's she's not really approachable except when she's in the midst of one of these roles. Yeah. And I think also a lot of her movie roles uh, in the, past 10 years let's say post oscar um so that would be 15 geez she's choosing really eclectic kind of inaccessible things like you think about like fur the diane arbus movie or like lars von trier's dogville or you know yeah like, and she's great in them but you can't walk up really close to them and like sort of interact with them but whereas this show it's accessible and she's really good and so it just i don't know but now i'm questioning my own theory because there are other actresses who are um, I don't know. I don't yeah. know why it is. And she's not really that chilly. She's pretty like forthright every she's time she gives an interview. She's married thing, to a, she lives in Nashville. I don't I don't know. It's a weird thing. <laughs> yeah. It is a weird thing about Nicole Kidman. You know, like she was just on the award circuit for Lion. And I yeah. I actually found her like and I was surprised too, because I, I think maybe she just looks chilly and ethereal, or maybe it's like yeah. the Tom Cruise NDR or like whatever it is, but like <laughs> um NDA. But like um the um <laughs> But the, uh, you know, I, I saw her on the red carpet consistently interacting with people and being super warm. I don't know. Well, and also like Tilda Swinton is chilly, but nobody's ever like, oh, Tilda Swinton. Wow. Surprised she's good in that. It's like, you know, that she's good in everything. That's, that's her brand. But Nicole's brand is more movie star than capital A actress. Yeah. Despite the many, many, I think it's just the Tom Cruise vortex probably. Let's I think so. I think starting as Mrs. You know, even though she was an actress before she met Tom Cruise, but starting on our radar kind of as Mrs. Tom Cruise is a hard thing to ever break out of perhaps. But speaking as we are about how good Nicole is, there's the question of the impending Emmy race and like are Reese and Nicole going to cancel each other out? Well, I mean, it's it's such a pile up. It's an insane category. With Jessica Lange and Susan Sarandon. Yeah, this show alone, you've got like, I mean, let's not forget about how great Laura Dern is. Mm -hmm. And Shailene Woodley is really wonderful. Mm -hmm. And Zoe Kravitz and beyond. Like, it's, it's crazy. But then, yeah, you've got Feud, which... I mean, it's going to be crazy. It's, it's going to be a bloodbath. <laughs> I think Laura Dern could easily slip into supporting yes. and yeah. snap that up. But yeah. the question, and this is this is a question that we were talking about last week. We were talking about that Oscar episode of Feud. But there's a question of like, would either Reese or Nicole slip into supporting in order to ensure that they both get a statue? And who would do it? And who could you possibly choose to do it? Don't you think know? that would be fair. But I, know, I mean, but... I think you I think, though, if they did it, I just don't know if they would do it. But I think it would be Nicole going to supporting. Really? Yeah, I guess. Because well, this is like her. Pro- this is Reese Witherspoon's project. She produced. But it, didn't like... they both do it? Didn't they both uh, work together on acquiring it? I feel like Nicole was yeah. the one who said to the author, if you sell this to us, we will get it made. Right. Um. So I don't know. I kind of think it's the reverse only because Nicole's role in the end is the showier one, just because she has the more like 
typically emotionally devastating arc. You but know Reese I mean? is the kind of like relatable one, which yeah. makes me think that she's the the kind of lead, like the center. The, I don't know. Maybe the feud, the two feud ladies and the and the two big little eyes main actresses cancel each other out, and we get a dark horse fifth like <laughs> contestant to come in and steal it all. I don't know who that would be, but you know, we can't forget Michelle Pfeiffer in um, the Wizard of Lies uh, about Bernie Madoff. She's playing Ruth Madoff in okay. the Barry Levinson HBO movie coming out in May. That's another huge name to yeah. add to this category. Yeah. And Fargo is coming out soon. Yep. It's coming soon. Yep. And Carrie Coon will have a lot of heat behind her because of um, The Leftovers, Leftovers also airing uh-huh. at the same time. I mean, to imagine that Carrie Coon is going to have both of those shows on at the same time is pretty insane. Yep. Um, I love Carrie Coon. Yeah, she's great. Let's just put it to the test. If you had to choose between um, between Reese or Nicole or between any of the, the stars of Big Little Lies, who would you vote for, Joanna? I think I would vote for Reese. Okay. I would. Yeah. I think her performance, I think she does more with less. Sure. You know, that Nicole, Nicole does so much, but she's also given so much to do. Like, you know, she's like on the floor naked and cry. You know what yeah. I mean? Like there, there's like so much for her to do. Whereas Reese is like trying to get Avenue Q on and has an affair. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. It's like, you know, so. That's and that all oh, that vomiting scene. Come on, Reese. Yeah. Yeah. That Reese. vomiting scene is pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, who would you who would you pick between Bet- Reese and Nicole? Basically, yeah. yeah. I think Nicole. I yeah. think Nicole. Um, I think that's pretty. Not to this word. Why does this word sound problematic? But not to. It's kind of brave, you know, to yeah. do the domestic violence thing. Yeah. To um and to embody that nightmare thing between being terrified of somebody and hating them and also loving them and wanting yeah. to fix it and fix your family and keep your family together. Like that's all she did a really great job of keeping that all together. That, and that couldn't have been easy to go. It's through really sensitively that. done. And you're right. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it, you know, we tend to see, and the writing obviously supports that, but like we tend to see it played one or the other, you know, one way or the other. And this yeah. is really interesting. And I, and I want to say that, like, I would give a nomination to Adam Scott and Alexander Sarsgaard, too, for, like, yeah. uh, these are actors that we're quite familiar with and what they can do. And, like, I think Adam Scott, who has tried to play dark in the past for the first time, I think really nails the dark side of that nice guy persona, which is something Richard and I were talking about in terms of Colossal. And then Alexander Sarsgaard, who played a literal monster for so long on True Blood, but really does capture this creepy fluctuation between so irresistibly charming and then so terrifying. I mean, the casting all around is phenomenal, but the Skarsgård casting is just inspired because even... I, as a hetero dude, I'm just like, that's a hell of a specimen. Yeah. That's a big hunk of man. You know, yeah. I could see why you stay with a guy like that when he's not yeah. doing this horrible thing. And yet it also is totally believable when when the demon comes out, you yeah. know? Yeah. And he's really good at subtly playing that manipulation where, like, yeah. he's saying, like, I'm going to get better. And you know that he's kind of lying. Something about Skarsgård, like... He can seem genuine, but a lot of the time he plays this kind of like shifty thing, this subtle kind of like uneasiness about him where you're like, oh, yeah. what's he all about? I think it's you're right. It's a really good performance. And, um, you know, I, I read an interview with him where he was like, yeah, I might never work after this because like <laughs> who cast me after this? But like I was OK with that. Well, that would be my question is because to me, that's like a serious awards contender if people don't end up just hating the right. character and transferring that to him. I don't know how that works. 
Yeah, I don't either. I mean, I mean, it's to the extent that there was an article um, online this week about like how to have a crush on Alexander Skarsgård again, like, at, like, like you know, because like, <laughs> like, he's just an actor. And we want to still find him attractive, but like, it's it's hard to look at him right well, now. Well, and know? when when I was flirting with the show early yeah. on, I was leaving the room whenever those two came on the screen. I mean, yeah. it was just too like the tension. It was so horrible. And actually, one of the things I found really fascinating about that finale and powerful is when Skarsgård and Nicole are in the car. And then you flip over to the party where things are not amazing, but they're a whole lot better than that. Yeah. And I just had this kind of moment of like almost revelation to be like, wow, like I'm sitting here on my couch. Like think of all the people that are in a situation a lot more like Nicole in that car yeah. right now. I don't know why that juxtaposition really did that, but there's something, you know, they really got you to feel the danger that she was in yeah. and also empathize with her situation. And even empathize with why she's kind of still liked him until the until the end. Yeah. It unfolds like a bad thriller, but it's still like, you know, when he finds the cell phone and you're like, don't leave the babysitter, don't get in the car with him. And she gets in the car with him and then he like speeds off past the valet and you're just on the edge of your seat. Because, yeah, even though I was pretty sure that it was it was Sarsgaard who's going to be the dead body at the end of this, there was still enough of a question mark up until the end that – you know, you're, you're panicked, you're terrified. And what's interesting, I'm really glad that you had the relationship you had with the show, Mike, because it feedbacks into what I was saying before, which is that I too, or I don't know if you want to claim this, but I too sort of dismissed Big Little Lies early on as like being this sort of female fronted soapy thing that I didn't think was going to be serious. And so like for you to like not, you know, uh, your your fiance was watching first couple episodes and you were sort of like, yeah, yeah, oh, there it is. Okay. And then you're just sort of <laughs> in it. Yeah. And like, I think that this Really, even more than something like Feud, I think this show really does a lot to prove what female-fronted storytelling can be and how it should be taken more seriously sometimes than it is. You know, it's great, great work by these actresses who, when I saw them at TCA, were crying on stage because they're like, we never get to do a scene where four women have lines. Like, that never happens to us. And so, like, you know, for this project to not only exist but be as good as it is is just fantastic, I think. Yeah, I mean, and I even want to say, like, they should make these shows whether or not the guy in the room ends up coming around. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it doesn't matter yeah. if I end up watching it or not. Like, right. why wouldn't you make the show anyway? Like, oh, sure. 51% well, of the population <laughs> is interested in these stories. Like, what's up with Hollywood? Why can't they get this right? But I was saying, like, even me who, like, has this uh, whatever reputation of being like, yay, more women, blah, blah, blah. I was like, what is this big right. little lie show? I don't know. <laughs> and then I was like, this is so good. Come on. Yeah, I think probably not a bad idea to present it as pulpy sort of guilty pleasure rather than some like serious thing that we all right, have to and sit then down surprise and watch. them yeah. with, with actually that it is an important piece of I think art. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah so See, it, the same thing didn't happen with This Is Us. You know, I I, no. I edged in and I I stayed on the edge with This yeah. Is Us. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is us is a different whole ball of wax. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Also, it's like four thousand episodes. Well, yeah, I mean that's the thing, and like you know, people were clamoring for a second season of Big Little Lies, and oh. I was like, no, the point is that it's just seven, and we're in, and yeah. we're out, and then it's done. But there's been some mixed messaging because Jean-Marc Vallée said, oh, absolutely not. We, 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 we told the story. And then Reese Witherspoon is doing this extended, you know, kind of Facebook live press tour thing for the show. And she's like, I don't know. There could be a new season if you want one. You know, it's like, wait, wh- who who's who's speaking uh, the truth here? I, well, I would trust Reese at this point over, as a producer. Over the director. Yeah, I mean, totally. she's got the holding the yeah. keys now. I mean, I guess I don't know. I, I guess I would I would 
venture back into that world but if it was the right thing but i don't know i kind of I would just leave it i there. would prefer it almost like as an anthology like a different town different people you know sure, what i yeah, mean yeah. like mm-hmm. same actors that's yeah. veering way far off the book but i mean I, I just well that works so well on true detective i feel like uh, it's a great model <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna we're headed back to vinci california <laughs> Like with Night Of, you know, they they said the same thing when Night Of ended where they're like, well, maybe a second season. And if it's a second season, of course, it's a completely new crime. And so but what's interesting is there's, you know, among the TV critic community who sort of like to have cyclical conversations about things. Back up again is this idea of like TV shows now don't know how to be TV shows. They only know how to be long movies. And so, you know, I would call Big Little Lies a seven hour movie. That's what it feels like. You know, there aren't standalone episodes. You're not going to sit and remember like, oh, that was the Avenue Q episode or whatever. And so I think a lot of TV critics have been pushing back against that notion. But at the same time, like when you talk about us having a second season of Big Little Lies, I'm like, no, please let it stand as a seven hour movie that we saw and we all liked I don't need more of that. Yeah, I think they should probably just do another book from the same author. They should all do something together again. Just something else. Bring the band back together. Totally. And Different album. I think people would love that. And I think that HBO must be thrilled about this. The ratings have been great. The reception has been amazing from both fans and critics and whoever. So hopefully this will spur them on to do... You know, they have coming up... um, I think it's the same director, Jean-Marc Vallée, who's doing a Gillian Flynn adaptation with Amy Adams of Sharp Objects, one of mm. Gillian Flynn's earlier books. That's going to be, I think, a kind of, you know, mini series. It's not going to be, you know, several seasons. Um, so they've that coming up. If that does well, then we've really got a ball rolling towards like a bunch of movie we stars. We don't need Game of Thrones. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> We're just going to get big movie stars to do seven episode shows and, you know. Yeah, isn't Meryl doing something for that, HBO? Yeah, I think that was yeah. yeah, so. I mean, you really cannot go wrong I mean, you can go wrong, but like when it goes right, rich people with secrets, it's just like, yeah. it's a classic. It's an eternal American story. I hope to get rich and have secrets myself. Someday, yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> the best way is to pretend that you have them and write it. Right, write the exactly. Book. Exactly. This year, I'm going to eat better and spend less time and money at the grocery store thanks to ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most. Each month, they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store, which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family. Each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of high quality meat right to my home. All meat is free of antibiotics and hormones. Each box has 9 to 11 pounds of meat, which is enough for 24 individual meals. It's packed fresh and shipped frozen and vacuum sealed so that it always stays that way. I can customize my box or go with one of theirs. Either way, I get exactly what I want. ButcherBox is really the most affordable and convenient way to get healthy, humanely raised meat. With ButcherBox, you get the highest quality meat for just about $6 a meal. And they even have free shipping nationwide, except for Alaska and Hawaii. So start your year off right with up to 10 pounds of free meat. For a limited time, ButcherBox is offering new members their ultimate keto bundle when you sign up today. That includes one pork butt, two pounds of ground beef, and three pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com slash cadence. That's butcherbox.com slash cadence. So before we go, I very selfishly wanted to talk about Can, which is in a month and change. But the announcement of what's going to be on the schedule is going to be next week. And just because of the way that we record, 
we figured we should talk about it this week rather than next week so it's not old news. There's been a lot of speculation. I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to it. I certainly have. I'm ready to be educated. I want to be okay. educated. Yeah, me too. Okay, me too. about what could be at this festival, which is notoriously unpredictable. Obviously, it's a big international festival. It's not all going to be English language Oscar movies um, the way that kind of Toronto can feel sometimes. But there are, that said, some potential Oscar hopefuls that are being considered or people think they're being considered. The one that I'm most excited about is The Beguiled, the Sofia Coppola Civil War era movie with Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman and Kirsten Dunst, who's having a great couple years. Um, Elle Fanning, who's in every other movie made these days, it feels like. But it seems like a really cool kind of eerie thriller. It's Sofia Coppola's second period piece or third, I guess, if you count Virgin Suicides. And I don't know. It's opening in June. So it's like, you know, people will get to see it soon after it's a can. But um, have you guys seen the trailer for that movie? Yes. Yeah. It looks amazing. Yeah. I mean, Sofia Coppola, very can. Oh, very can. The very bling can. ring was there. I think she's had a few yeah. movies there. Um, yeah. They love. Uh, th- we need the photo of they her love in the Coppola cast, you know, but at, the, for the, at the photo call, like with the C behind. Oh, like, yeah. It's yeah, just yeah. it's all. Kirsten Dunst was a juror last year. She's now. Oh, yeah. Queen of Cannes. So that that feels like it's probably going to happen. Mm-hmm. And the nice thing is, you know, a lot of times with Cannes movies, it's like raves come out of the festival and then no, no one can see them for six months to a year. But right. the, but Beguiled is actually coming out in June. So yeah. like, people will get to see it soon after, um, which is nice. Another big one full of famous people directed by famous person uh, is Downsizing. Alexander Payne movie. Oh, um, you know, I love me some Alexander Payne. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> Can likes him. Nebraska premiered there and Bruce Stern won the Best Actor Prize. Right. And this one, though, it seems a little bit more... It's a little uh, more high concept than, than Nebraska was. It's about a guy played by Matt Damon who decides that he can live his life more efficiently if he shrinks himself to just a couple inches tall. Uh, and Kristen Wiig plays his wife. Laura Dern is in it, a longtime Alexander Payne uh, player. And 10 minutes of it screened at CinemaCon in Las Vegas uh, last week or the week before. And it got strong reception there. So it feels like that could be can-bound. Even if it's not in competition, like it could get a special screening yeah. or something. Um, I mean... It sounds like a bad idea. It sounds like a bad idea. And, <laughs> but uh, if anyone can pull it off, I think Alex or Alexander Payne can probably pull it off. Yeah, and it's been a while since he went like full quirk like that, you know, because yeah. he did Nebraska and then Descendants, which were more sort of straightforward dramas. Yep. Um, so this will be like really like hearkening back to like almost like elect- election pre-election. Era. Yeah, almost. pre. Yeah. yeah. Uh huh. So that'll be interesting to see. You know, it's not a sure thing Oscar movie, but like it's coming out in December. It's from him. Like it, it feels like that's the trajectory it's headed for. I, I don't think you can ever quite count Matt Damon out. You know, mm-hmm. there's like, yeah. and if it's the and Alexander Payne is just he's in the Oscar sweet spot. I mean, yeah. he came close with Descendants. He did to Best Picture, and Bruce Dern really tried to get that uh, supporting actor. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. Win. You know, he came. He came close. He came close. At yeah, least theoretically. Payne has been sort of in that milieu for a while mm-hmm. now, and maybe I don't know. Who knows? Maybe this will be the the one that does it. Either way, if it's there, I'm I'm excited to see it. Just a couple other ones. Uh, Sean Baker, who made Tangerine, has a movie that people are oh. saying could be in there. That's another thing with a lot of um, amateur like actors, non actors. Willem Dafoe is in it, but then I think a lot of the other people, a lot of kids in Florida. It's called the Florida Project, or at least that's the working title right now. So that could be intriguing. That's one of those ones that, like, I love Tangerine so much, and I'm just really interested to see if it was, like, lightning in a bottle or actually the sure. beginning of something really amazing. So. Yeah. Speaking of Nicole Kidman, uh, she's in a movie that John Cameron Mitchell, who made Hedwig and the Angry Inch, his new film, uh, he's directed her in Rabbit Hole before this, called How to Talk to Girls at Parties, which is a kind of 80s punk or late 70s punk. Based on a Neil Gaiman property. Yeah, br- British kids 
and then it, aliens show up. And actually, I saw an, a very, very early screening of this movie. I can't really talk about it, but um, that could be an interesting one. I'm looking at an IndieWire piece that everyone should read if you, if you care. It's like 50 movies that could be at Cannes, and they're saying that that'll be like in the midnight sidebar. It won't be huh. like in the main competition, okay. which actually makes sense given the kind of tone of the movie. But, you know, could be a good year for Nicole Kidman at Cannes if that's there and the Sofia Coppola movie's there. You know, she's already having a good year, so why stop there? Isabel Huppert is in a new movie that Michael Haneke directed, and he's a, a fan of, Cannes is a fan of his, and uh, Huppert was in Amour that, that he made a few years ago. So really, there's just a lot that's coming up, but we'll, we'll know more next week. But I just wanted to bring it to everyone's attention that we are almost at that season. It's happening. It's all yeah. happening. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited. I mean, it's always like I'm just about getting over my post-Oscar yeah. exhaustion and ready to learn <laughs> well, about exactly. some new movies. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I have a dream project, mm-hmm. and I don't know if it's even going to be done in time, <laughs> but the new Oceans movie. Don't you think the new Oceans movie should oh, premiere yeah. again? I mean, that would be perfect because yeah. you'd get the, all the photographs of the of the eight of them. Of like, the actresses. You know, that would be incredible. The rumor right now is that... Um, that the King Arthur movie, Guy Ritchie's uh, oh, thing. With no. Oh, there you Hoon. go. The, the rumor is that that is going to open it, much like Mad Max did two years ago, because Warner Brothers, which yeah. is releasing both those movies, likes to kind of launch their a big summer movie at Cannes. So that's kind of the one I've heard, but there are potentially other you know bigger films that we'll when we'll know more about that soon. You guys, that movie looks like the worst things on legs to me so we'll see what happens <laughs> i don't know i i've become a weird guy richie apologist because i sort of like those sherlock holmes movies so i mean i love man from uncle but the, uh oh and man from uncle was good too yeah le- yeah like recasting king arthur as like you know a brawling lad of the streets i just i can't i can't get behind it at all so you're, you're a first night purist with the, the i guess sean so connery and yeah sean connery get the fuck out so. <laughs> <laughs> oh and there's a new movie potentially from the guy who made force majeure which I with Elizabeth Moss and Dominic West. Oh, that's good. Yeah, sorry, I'm just looking down this list. It's kind of scattershot. But yeah, it's just, um, you know, it's fun to speculate. Oh, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Plans, the Luke Besson, (gasps) big, spectacular. That could be screening out of competition. That would be really fun. Because I think, you know, with Cara Delevingne, I I think that could be bonkers, good, bad. (laughs) I I do have a a logistical question with that. Okay, let's just sort of, theorize about this if you were going to spend 180 million dollars on a movie which is a reported budget of valerian in the city of a thousand planets and it came to time to cast the movie would your first instincts be dane dehan and cara delavigny <laughs> like isn't it's that like, strange so i saw a lot of footage of it at, at comic-con yeah. and like i actually thought cara delavigny was really good okay. dane dehan is yet i've yet to understand why he is um <laughs> well when a man loves a woman <laughs> Cara Delevingne was actually like sort of broken in a way that I have not seen her do in a role yet. Just she's just like fun and charismatic in that part, you know. And then you've got Rihanna as like a alien version of Sally Bowles. I mean, there's and I'm all for Rihanna's burgeoning film career. She's also in Ocean's Eight. Hey, if both of those movies were at Cannes, Rihanna would be everywhere. That would be fantastic. That would be good. We'd like that. Yeah, we could like that a lot. Oh, and Michael Haneke has a refugee drama yep. set in Calais. Yeah, okay. that'll be cheery. With, uh, Isabelle Huppert. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and, and, and I should mention that potentially there will be a strange shadow cast over Cannes, depending on how the French election goes, which is right before the festival. Oh. So if Marine Le Pen wins and, it you know... Fascism. First fascism, fascism return, the triumphant return of fascism, <laughs> with like posters of her face everywhere. Yeah, like banners, yeah, yeah. You know, like um, have a little Vichy 
Yeah, Vichy right, party. Exactly. So it could be an interesting festival. It, well, it always is an interesting festival, but um, we'll know more next week. Um, we'll talk about it, I'm sure. In the meantime, you can read this post on IndieWire speculating, and it's, it's kind of fun to, to play the guessing game. Well, that does it for this week's episode of Little Gold Men. As ever, we'll end with a reminder or a plea to review and rate us on iTunes. It really helps boost the profile of the podcast and for us to find new listeners and all that. You can also find us on Twitter. We're at Little Gold Men as a collective, but individually, we're all on Twitter. I'm at Rylaws. Joanna? Joe wrote this. Mike? Mike underscore Hogan. And the erstwhile Katie Rich is at Katie Rich. This episode was produced and edited by Alana Milner. Thanks always to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. And the award for best explanation of what is going on in the world right now goes to Mike Hogan. I think it's just a Tom Cruise vortex, probably, let's face it. 